Let us pray. God, would you meet us this morning as we study this story in Mark 12? Let my words be helpful, we ask. But as I am a human and have so much to learn, would you allow any words of mine that are not helpful to be simply forgotten? And as we gather, would you remind us that you are with us, even as things are uncertain and we aren't sure what is coming next? Please, Jesus, grant us again the assurance of your presence and your love. Amen. Now get ready, people. I'm about to preach a sermon with multiple sports analogies. And if you know me, you know that this is new territory. Perhaps the first sermon I have preached with sports analogies, and admittedly, probably the last. So here it goes. I was in sixth grade, tall and skinny as usual, about the height that I am now, which, as you can imagine, made me gangly and awkward in sixth grade when most everyone was shorter than me, even a lot of the adults. And this story takes place in PE class, of all things, where coordinated limbs and hand-eye coordination was needed. And let me tell you, I had neither. I remember being picked last that day for my team, which isn't too surprising with my set of skills, but it did hurt. And after teams were chosen, we all lined up on the field in the spring sunshine to play a little elementary baseball. And when my turn came up, I was nervous. This was a new school for me. I had only been there for less than a year, and I remember kids calling me weird names and telling me my fashion sense wasn't awesome. And in their defense, it wasn't. I wore leggings and big sweaters from Goodwill way before that was cool. And while I did have a great group of friends in sixth grade, many of whom I still call friends to this day, I was nervous to try and play baseball in front of this whole class. And when I stepped up to the plate, it went about as bad as can be expected. My teacher threw the first pitch and I got a strike. He threw the second pitch, strike two. My teammates at this point are groaning, not very quietly behind me, and I am turning redder and redder. And my teacher throws the third pitch and I strike out. And this is the part of the story where perhaps I am the worst baseball player and where I am certainly the least liked player on the field. And as we read our text this morning, there is a character in our story today who we in our modern Christian context often think of as a bit like the last kid chosen for an elementary baseball team. In Jesus' time, things were a little different. This character might have gotten a lot of respect, but characters like him sometimes cause trouble for Jesus in our text. This character is that of the scribe that comes to Jesus and asks him a question. You've perhaps heard of the teachers and the scribes, of the religious leaders of the day as you've read through the Gospels. They aren't always portrayed in a very good light. Sometimes in our texts they get it wrong, like many of us religious leaders do today. The scribes did a lot of study and interpretation of the text. They were a bit like pastors are today, and Jesus often had criticism for them and the ways that they were leading people astray. Jesus' theology, it was much like the scribes and Pharisees, and perhaps because of that, and because they were leading people, people that Jesus loved, Jesus often challenged them and called them to live better and lead better. And right before we pick up the text in Mark today, many teachers of the law, many religious leaders come to Jesus and try to ask questions of him. Some of them are doing so to trap him and get him in trouble somehow. Some are asking him questions to prove their own goodness. 
I imagine a lot of Jesus' disciples would pick these religious leaders last for their metaphorical baseball team. But a curious thing happens in this, with this scribe in Mark 12 that is a little different from the stories of the scribes and religious leaders that come before. This scribe comes up to bat, comes to Jesus to ask questions like some of the other religious leaders before him, but he does so just a little bit differently. This man comes to Jesus, not trying to prove anything or trap the traveling rabbi named Jesus. He comes genuinely wondering and seemingly open to what Jesus' answer might be. He says, what is the greatest law? Which commandment is first? And he comes to Jesus and asks because he is curious. He had watched Jesus answer other questions and he had seen that Jesus did a good job. He answered well. And so this scribe asks asks Jesus which commandment is first and most important. It seems that he truly wishes to know. And this is perhaps how Jesus asks us to come to him too, I think, with reverent curiosity. Sometimes I think with all that is happening around us, we become afraid. Afraid that if we ask Jesus a question and the answer is different than we thought, then our whole faith crumbles to the ground. But in reality... I think our faith is not a brick wall, where one thing changes, where when one thing changes, a brick is taken out, all falls, and all is lost. No, I think our God is bigger than that and much more mysterious. Perhaps we have questions and searching. Maybe we can come to Jesus not to prove anything, not to be right, not to bend the divine to our will, but instead we can come to God with open arms to behold the mystery that is our wild, loving God. I like that better. And Jesus answers the scribes' questions. He starts out with what they all would have said in worship together. He starts out with the Shema, Shema Yisrael. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And then he says the second greatest commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And I don't know about you, but these words are relaxing to me. I am someone who is more naturally stressed about what I should be doing or not doing. Perhaps it's how I grew up. Sometimes churches teach us that God is always watching, waiting for us to screw it all up. And I heard that from that from many different places over the years. We've all heard hell and fire and brimstone serve sermons, uh, pictures of God dangling a spider over the pit of hell. And those kind of sermons, they freaked me out. My parents were so kind at disciplining me, and so I'm not totally sure where my terror around God came from besides those sermons that I would hear every once in a while. My parents were so great about sitting me down and having a conversation about why my behavior at different times wasn't the best. All they had to do was give me the look, and I would know that I was in trouble. But being the sensitive kid that I was, no matter how loving my parents were to me as they disciplined me, I took that and I ran with it. I came to believe that perhaps God was always giving me the look, telling me that I was failing in some way. I would read my Bible and see that there were many rules, some stated in our text that you all read this morning, and I felt that perhaps I couldn't ever get them all right to please God, and I really wanted to please God. 
And so when I learned about Jesus telling us that the whole law and prophets boil down to this love of God and love of neighbor, I breathed a sigh of relief. Jesus brings it all together for people like me here. It is like Jesus is telling us to do our best to love at the center of it all and the rest will fall into place. It takes away my worry. We are still called to love pretty radically, sacrificially even, but we are called to focus, focus on love for God and love for neighbor, even love for self as that is implied here in the text. It assumes that we love ourselves and that we love others in the same way. That is a gift for me. In the words of Pastor Steve, Jesus reframes the law and commandments for us here in Mark 12. And of course, loving God and loving neighbor as we love ourselves will look different for each of us. In the Gospels, doesn't Jesus ask some to sell all of their possessions and give to the poor and some to follow him? Some he asks to go back to their town and preach the good news. And others, he asks them to remain silent about how Jesus has healed them. Perhaps the same is true for us. We are called to love God and love neighbor, and there are some ways that that certainly manifests across the board. Loving God certainly means that we talk to God, but perhaps some of us talk to God in a traditional sense of what prayer is, and some of us walk in nature or paint or sing our prayers. And loving neighbor certainly means that we do justice and love mercy, but maybe God calls us each to use our gifts in unique ways to love, some through calling people as they are quarantined, some through sewing masks for healthcare workers, some through reading stories for our kids in the church each night. Some of us love through praying for others, showing up to serve the breakfast that happens each Saturday, making meals for our families, telling someone that we love them, writing letters to our leaders for policy change in the middle of the pandemic. We are loving others now through staying at home. We are all called to love our neighbors in the ways we were created to, and I see each of you doing this in your spaces and places this week. It might be stressful to you that we are not meeting each week for church. Perhaps, perhaps you wonder if you are doing right in the middle of all this, but Jesus teaches the scribe these two greatest commandments in the middle of the temple, probably, showing the people that rituals and worshiping at the temple, those are good, but they aren't everything. He refocuses things and says that loving neighbor and loving God are the most important. We may not be meeting at church to do our regular rituals together, but you, you are the church. You are living into these two greatest commandments, and it is so beautiful to behold. First covenant, you are doing it. I am constantly amazed at you all and and our city at how people have shown up for each other. You may be feeling unholy or unproductive, but you're doing it. You're loving God and you are loving others. It is a beautiful thing to behold. And the scribe sees Jesus' answer as beautiful too. He says as much. And Jesus even commends him, saying that he is close to the kingdom of God. He's getting it. And because they all know that Jesus has answered well, everyone leaves him alone and doesn't ask him any more questions. And I love all of this. I love these greatest commandments and I love what you all are doing. But if you are anything like me, perhaps you're wondering how long you can sustain it. Rest is important, certainly. We need good food. Time with friends over Zoom perhaps helps. But in the middle of this pandemic, with all of the loving we are doing, what about our own hearts? How are we being fed? 
This work of loving, it can be so exhausting. How do we sustain this sort of love long-term? I recently read something that put this into perspective. In this ancient time, as we wonder, anxious time, as we wonder what is coming next, I've found that a couple minutes of meditation do wonders for my sense of peace. And during my moments of meditation each, each day, I have been reading a prayer book called May It Be So by Justin McRoberts and artist Scott Erickson. One of the meditations in it, it really got me. This prayer was what I needed to continue in this business of loving during a worldwide pandemic, and so I'm going to share it with you through a story. Perhaps it will give you strength to keep loving, too. And as I tell this story, some of it is written in Justin McRoberts' words because he writes them so well. And it goes like this. The author Justin is a man who loves sports. And Justin owns a very special baseball autographed by the 1974 Oakland Athletics. The ball is special to him for a few reasons. Number one, because 1974 is his birth year. Number two, because that is the year that the Oakland A's won their third straight World Series title. And number three, perhaps most of all, this baseball is important to him because his dad gave it to him and he has kept it even after his dad has died. And just like his dad, Justin keeps the baseball in a glass display box to keep it free of dust and to keep it safe from a small set of hands. You see, Justin is a dad, and once his son turned four, he wanted to play baseball. And with that interest in baseball came an interest in the special baseball set under the glass box in his dad's office. Of course, his son wanted to play with it, throw it around the yard with his newfound baseball skills. Of course, he wanted his dad to teach him how to play catch with it. And while Justin tried to explain to him rather unsuccessfully why this baseball was so important, and while it looked like any other baseball, it wasn't one to be thrown around the backyard, he told his son that some things were simply special for personal reasons. Justin talked about his dad to his son and talked about how much he loved Oakland sports. It perhaps didn't make much sense to a four-year-old who just wanted to play ball, but it did stop him from taking it out of the glass case to play with. That is, at least for a while. One day, in the middle of his son's little league season, Justin got back home to his office and noticed that the Oakland A's autographed ball had been removed from its protective case and was safely resting on a salad plate covered by a glass kitchen mixing bowl. And in the protective case that originally housed Justin's sacred baseball, in that case sat a ball that his son's coach had given him to commemorate his first multi-hit game. The ball under the protective case now didn't boast of autographs from famous baseball players anymore, but it did bear just three words. It said, game ball, and his son's name. Justin's son knew that the glass case was for special baseballs. He wanted to share that space with his dad. He wanted his name there. And this... I think this is how we are invited to come to God. No matter what Justin's son cognitively understood or didn't understand, he emotionally assumed a special place in his dad's life, his world, and in his heart. 
God invites us to come to God in the same way. We are invited to come like the scribe, open hands and open hearts full of questions. And we are invited to come to God assuming that we hold a special place in God's heart. And I think this is how we can continue to love in uncertain times. We aren't asked to this radical love for God and neighbor from a place of emptiness, of hunger. We are called to love radically, but only because God first loved us. We can love because we can assume that we hold a special place in our heavenly parent's heart. Our game ball deserves to be under God's protective glass too. We can assume that love. It is assured to us. It won't stop. It is never ending. And you might be wondering what happened to me as a little sixth grade baseball failure. This is the second half of that story. There had been three strikes on that elementary school baseball field and I was out. And my teacher felt bad for me, I think, at that point. Here I was, the new kid in weird floral leggings in sixth grade, taller than the average adult, not everyone's favorite at the moment, chosen last, and I had let down my team. And my teacher, he decides to come over and give me some coaching help. Now, my teacher knew that one kid in particular had been teasing me, and this kid's name was Ryan. Ryan is and was a perfectly nice kid, but he did have it out for me in sixth grade. He would tease me because of my name, mostly, and sometimes because my mom tried to get us all to be vegetarians that year, and I came to school with vegetarian corn dogs, which Ryan thought was pretty weird. And so when my teacher, my coach, came over to home base, he said to me at a volume that everyone on that field could hear, he said, Ellie, now I know baseball isn't your thing, but I'm going to give you another shot at hitting the ball. And I want you to think of the ball as Ryan's head. And I was embarrassed to be singled out. Embarrassed because embarrassment is also perhaps the most prevailing feeling in sixth grade. But with every other kid looking at me, I decided that perhaps I should give it a try. And my teacher, now back on the pitcher's mound, winds up for the pitch. In my head, being the good little Mariners fan that I am, I am imagining the announcer Dave Niehaus describing the field. I was a dramatic kid. And as my teacher tosses the ball my way, I imagined the ball to be Ryan's head. Perhaps at the last minute, I closed my eyes. And I kid you not, I hit a home run. The ball flies into the outfield and none of the sixth graders can quite catch it. I'm hearing Dave's voice shouting, my, oh my, as the ball rolls down the field and onto the playground. And I run the bases, formerly the least favorite player and now at least a respected player. I meant business apparently and Ryan, he didn't tease me again. And I remember going home and telling my parents who I knew always loved me. I told them the story, and they hugged me and celebrated with me. I could be assured of their love for me whether I was skilled at baseball or not. I simply assumed that they loved I simply assumed that they loved me, and that they who loved me would want to hear all about my sixth grade baseball moment. And so, as we end, I want to share with you a prayer that Justin writes in his book that has been carrying me through these past few weeks. It has been on repeat in my head, and I even pray it as I feel overwhelmed. The prayer is this. God, grant me once again assurance of your presence and love. 
And one more time, God, grant me assurance once again of your presence and love. And so I invite you all to pray this too this week with me as you're feeling overwhelmed. This week as you are loving so many. This week as you are resting because you deserve that. This week as you are worshiping, educating, cleaning, posting things, staying at home. May we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loves us, that we are God's beloved children. May we know God's love for us so deeply that we simply assume that God is present with us and loves us and wants to hear our stories. Amen.